This is R.J. Rushduni, easy chair number 424. This evening, December 10, 1998, Douglas Murray, Mark Rushduni, and I will uh, discuss, first of all, the subject of debt, a very critically important subject. We have discussed this before. We have gone into the biblical requirements of debt-free living and no debt beyond a six-year limit, the seventh year to be a year of release and a Sabbath unto the Lord. Now, today in particular, the subject of debt is a relevant one because Last year, 1997, the personal bankruptcies in the United States were at an all-time high. If my recollection is correct, 1,300,000 families went into bankruptcy. The indications are that 1998 may see that number surpassed. If it becomes less than that next year, it will be because there are measures in Congress to alter the bankruptcy laws and make bankruptcy more difficult. But the point is a significant one. We have supposedly had a couple of years or more of very great prosperity, and we are told by some unequaled, unrivaled prosperity. And yet the bankruptcy rate for families is at an all-time high. This means that the amount of debt per person has gone up steadily and today it is an easy slide on the part of a family from living well to being bankrupt. The debt is so great as carried by private individuals as well as corporations that uh, bankruptcy comes very quickly. Well, the outlook for debt is not good because it's going to increase. We have a situation that is building up in the Far East. We've seen some serious um, breakdowns of the national economies throughout Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, and to a growing extent in Japan and China. This will have its implications on us. Already some uh, periodicals are making note of the fact that uh, it is proving to be something of a bonanza for Americans in that what is happening is that these countries are taking their heavy production, no longer having a local market, 
and not too good a one in Europe and are planning to dump their goods very cheaply in the United States. This will undo American competitors and will lead to trouble here so that people who are in debt at present are probably skating on very thin ice. So the subject of debt is a very important one. It is a central aspect of biblical law and morality that we live debt-free insofar as is possible and avoid long-term debt. Now, do you men have any comments, questions, or additions to what I've said? Well, the uh, Asia is going through somewhat the similar thing in their banking system that the United States went through in the savings and loan crisis. Uh, uh, Japan, for instance, is, uh, they have $600 billion uh, currently, the banks in Japan have $600 billion worth of bad loans that will never be repaid. And uh, they went out and made uh, unwise loans uh, on uh, people who bought property at inflated prices. And uh, now that uh, property values are starting to drop, those loans are not going to be repaid. Uh, so somebody's going to have to finance that, otherwise their banks are going to go down. And, of course, the underlying threat is that the Japanese hold so much U.S. Treasury bond paper yes. uh, that the United States financed its debt bubble with in the 1980s under Volcker, uh, the uh, federal chairman at that time, who thought it was a good idea to lay off U.S. debt on foreign governments, that uh, we are now in a position of being blackmailed if we do not provide the liquidity for Japan and the, mm -hmm. the Asian Rim countries then the threat is that they will sell their U.S. Treasury bonds and drive the dollar right through the floor. Yes. So the American taxpayer is going to be held hostage here. Not only did we have to bail out our own banks and savings and loans who made uh, uh, ill, uh, uh, you know, poor loans that were not going to be repaid, but now we have become the the uh, financier of last resort for the world. Uh, we have uh, corporate welfare now. We're, we're doing it on a grand scale. Uh, we're providing liquidity for the entire world. And uh, we're in a position where we can't say no. It's uh, interesting, even though we still refer to ourselves as a capitalistic economy, our, in, a, in a, the textbook, idea of a capitalistic economy is one that runs on capital. But our economy doesn't really run on capital, it runs on debt. Yes. And we are shifting debt around. And so um, you owe me and uh, I owe the next guy and he owes the next guy and if everybody pays on time, we all get by with our servicing our debt. But that's a very vulnerable system because once one guy can't pay the next guy or one corporation can't pay its debts, then it impacts others. So we've created a house of cards that if it starts to fold for any reason, some people think Y2K could precipitate it. Y2K is just one thing that people have focused on um, 
heavily, per, some people think too much perhaps. But the fact is that our economy now for half a century has been vulnerable because we've been in debt. The government went in debt. They've encouraged people to go into debt because they low, whenever, every time the government lowers interest rates, they're trying to say, they're saying spend. And when they raise the interest rates, they say, well, we don't want that much inflation, so slow down a little bit. And they've been, but they've been, we've been encouraged to go into debt. The ads are always interesting that how easy it is to borrow. And there are all kinds of ways now you can go into debt. If you own your house, or even if you don't own your house, they say, okay, borrow up to 120% of the equity of your house. Um, you can get a checking account that works as a reverse mortgage. So if you write a check for $10,000, they basically that's equity you no longer have in your house. The bank has it. And they've, all, they've got all sorts of clever ways to encourage you to go into debt. And they always make it sound like they're doing you a really big favor <laughs> to let you go into debt because you can play the game. Mm -hmm. Look at all the things you can do if you go into debt. Why sit on all that equity when that equity can be doing something for you? And uh, if we play that game, we have to be aware of the consequences of is if something goes wrong. And the consequences is your personal tragedy. You can be wiped out. One of the uh, things I'm concerned about this Y2K thing is that people are going to use it as a convenient excuse to default. Uh, anything that upsets the, the flow of debt service uh, is going to be used by as an excuse for people to file bankruptcy. There are a lot of people who have been working the bankruptcy laws uh, for many years. I, I mean, they file bankruptcy numerous times. Um, they uh, uh, get a bunch of credit cards, which they push on you. I mean, I almost have to tear up credit card uh, people who send me applications for credit cards almost daily, almost daily. I, this is not an exaggeration. I mean, it, almost uh, at least four or five times a week, I get uh, credit card solicitations in the mail. Uh, I don't know why. I've tried to get off this list. I've called. I've written and so forth. But they keep coming. They just ignore your protestations that you don't want the credit cards. You don't want the uh, continuation of these solicitations. Uh, it's almost, it's, it's a mindless game. It's become, uh, it's like there's a machine out there that's generating this. The other thing, uh, b besides the Y2K thing, is that no new wealth is being produced by this. Simply paying interest on money, on wealth that has already been created, does not create new wealth. You have to make something that somebody can either eat or wear or live in or use before you've got new wealth. And the world seems to be doing less of that. You know, the so-called information age uh, does not produce uh, any of those things, the basic needs of, of mankind. Service economy kind of falls apart when you have a real financial crisis. Exactly. exactly. Service economy works <coughs> if everything's puttering along just fine and people are willing to pay for all sorts of services. Uh, rather than do it themselves, but when things fall apart, they don't pay people for services. It's it's uh, spendable income, which or discretionary income, which the the federal government and the state governments watch very very closely. They have people who do nothing else but uh, plot the amount of spendable income that the general population has, 
and then uh, they know how much they can raise taxes by. Now it'll be interesting to see how quickly they respond by lowering taxes when there is a recession and no one has any discretionary income uh, because they don't have much time. Uh, you know, when the people are uh, pounding on the, the, uh, the castle gates, it's a little too late to lower taxes. And it'll be interesting to see how quickly they can reduce their, uh, 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 their habits of big spending. A lot of people do not believe we can go into inflation. And my answer to those people is that as long as you have a paper money economy, inflation is at the end of the road rather than deflation because the state has the power to create new money and it will continue to print more and more money to meet its needs. It has historically always been the least politically painful method of, yes. of uh, trying to alleviate the crisis. Mm -hmm. Well, debt, therefore, given these things, is an urgently important subject for us to consider today. And we need to avoid debt because it is a high road to disaster nationally and personally. I do not see any escape for it on the national level. I do see the possibility of escaping from it on the personal level. But it's going to take uh, a lot of hard-headed thinking and living. I recall how inflated things became not much by present-day comparisons, but in terms of past American history in uh, the 20s. And uh, everything was going up and up, and people felt that uh, World War I had issued in a new world order and a new world of prosperity. And then the collapse came. It was startling how quickly things uh, fell. And housing went right through the floor. There were vacant uh, subdivisions everywhere. And people were very hard up. They didn't have the money to buy food to put on the table in many instances. That was a reality. On the other hand, those who had been debt-free when the crash came uh, suddenly were a kind of a new rich element. They could uh, go, and I'm thinking of a specific case, of a farmer who went from uh, Model T to a Buick, to a Buick sedan. And uh, the sad fact is that it marked him in the eyes of others as a rich man. It incited hostility, when in reality he had simply avoided debt 
and therefore had cash in hand, and cash went a lot further. And this people uh, fail to realize. They are not aware of the deadly consequences of debt. Now, consider housing. A hard-headed man, uh, I'm smiling because the basic thing in his life was that he and his mother-in-law never got along. They were always fighting with one another. But uh, the mother-in-law had the sense to recognize that this man had a good head for business and for money, even though he was in the pastorate. And as she was able, she gave him money to invest, and he invested in housing. Housing in uh, the Roseville and Auburn areas, 2,000, 2,500 good houses, because he said they will double and triple in value after the war. Well, he was much too conservative, much too conservative. But uh, there were not many like that who thought and planned conservatively, who knew that a debt-ridden uh, economy was uh, doomed to failure. It is interesting that in my hometown, at least, the uh, interest rate on loans dropped to 1%. And the reason for it was people were so badly burned by the inflationary economy and debt living that nobody wanted to go into debt. And the banks had trouble finding borrowers at 1%. Well, we're going to go through that same kind of thing probably once again. Certainly, debt living is going to uh, require a day of reckoning. Well, he was smart because he realized that basic wealth is something you can live in mm -hmm. or something you can eat or something you can wear. Those are the things that people have to have. You pick any one of those commodities and the world's going to beat a path to your door. Well, this man was quite a hard-headed old-fashioned conservative, and uh, he lived in Nevada, but he saw that California was on the brink of being a very well-populated state. He felt that there was going to be no return to uh, the more modest ways of life and that instead of Sacramento being uh, an overgrown but sleepy uh, village almost with the uh, legislator's uh, meeting a few weeks each year or every other year, I've forgotten. He felt it was going to be a huge state, very well populated, and with increasing demands uh, on people 
in the way of taxes. So he invested accordingly, and it really paid off. Well, you know, he understood what wealth was, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think anyone would argue with the fact that governments do not produce wealth. They no. only produce debt. Uh, I don't know of any government that's ever made money. Uh, they don't produce any wealth. They only consume it. Um, if people continue to believe the lies of government, uh, then they will be enslaved. And debt is pure enslavement, and yeah. government, that's the reason government likes debt, yeah. and they like people to be in debt. Why is it that governments allow you to file bankruptcy? It's because they can control the action. Yes. Uh, if you didn't pay your debts before, you know, in, in times past, uh, you were simply shunned uh, or ostracized in whatever community you lived in. That was the punishment for not paying your debts, unless they, you know, somebody got mad at you and came after you. But you're absolved. You you are absolved of the moral responsibility of meeting uh, your financial obligations by government. And uh, government is the great enslaver. The modern banking system is a debt-creating system. It is no longer a place uh, of safekeeping for your money. It's a place where you put it in the hands of people who have inflationary investment ideas. Well, they're, they're the greatest con men in the world. I mean, currently we're getting 1% on uh, checking account, and I don't know what it is on, on currently on savings account. It, it fluctuates a little bit, but I know it goes down as the prime rate goes down. And uh, yet uh, credit card interest is 22%. Uh, that's unprecedented yes. in history. No government, no uh, culture in history, I don't think, has ever had that kind of a spread between what you get paid on savings and what you get paid uh, if you want to go out and borrow. Borrow money, uh, you know, automobile interest has got to be eight or nine or uh, ten percent uh, for a new car. Uh, a house is uh, a loan on a house is probably seven or eight percent. Yet on savings, you get one percent. It's a sucker game, and yet people are doing it because well, they've been convinced by government that it's a good idea to be in debt. And if you don't put your money in the bank and you try to keep too much cash, you, they get very suspicious of someone who has too much cash. Well, that's part of the game. That's they, part of the game. They encourage the debt, because the whole debt thing, because they wanted to go into debt, but government always has an ace in a hole. They can create the stuff to, to pay off their debt if they, well, they, anytime they want to. They sell it to suckers overseas. <laughs> <laughs> they, there's nobody, I, you know, there are not very many people here in the United States who buy U.S. Treasury bills. Uh, because there's a two-step, there's a two-tiered interest rate. In order to get foreign governments, for instance, and during the 1980s, uh, if you were a U.S. citizen and you went to buy a U.S. Treasury bill, say a $10,000 Treasury bill, you were offered uh, six and a half, seven percent. The Japanese demanded and got eleven and a half percent. Now, what you know, what what kind of yeah. a deal is that? The Japanese understood what was happening. Exactly. The money was, wasn't worth as much. They knew it was going to be inflated, so they wanted mm -hmm. a higher interest rate. 
Well, this is why the president has been sending uh, sugary messages to the Far East, whether Japan, China, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, in effect telling them, uh, just be good and don't rock a boat, and we're going to help you. Because he knows that uh, we are heavily indebted to them because they were buying our national debt for a long time. We promised them a very good rate of interest, and we don't dare renege on it, and we do need their cooperation. Clinton offered to send troops to Indonesia to prevent the present order from collapsing and there be uh, an attempt to, well, cash in on all their bonds, which would break us. Well, just starting a run would be catastrophic. I mean, all, uh, just one country, if it started the ball rolling, they'd all jump on the bandwagon and they, they wouldn't be able to stop it. So that's why the sugar-coated messages to the Pacific Rim countries, the underlying message is, please don't sell your U.S. Treasury bonds. They know they have the power, and uh, and they're using it, uh, probably with uh, uh, much more of a gloved hand than, than we realize, but they're getting what they want. Uh, for instance, uh, the most favored nation uh, trading status that China has. We have a huge, huge um, uh, uh, foreign uh, uh, payment, foreign debt that we owe China because of all of the goods that China is shipping in here. You can't buy anything in the store. You go to Walmart, you go to any department store, and everything is made in China. All of the toys, all of the shoes, all of the clothes, you look at the labels, everything is made in China. Yes, and uh, what we don't realize is how those corporations have political boards. They are governed not merely by the businessman who started them, but by people in politics. This is why I believe it's Walmart that among its board members about three, four years ago when I last saw the list was uh, one named Hillary Clinton. Sure. Now what does she know about marketing? market yes. with no experience <laughs> which is like a one chance out of a hundred mm-hmm 99% percent of all people who invest in the commodities market lose money but just out of the blue mm-hmm. she just happened to hit it now oh. debt is debt is catastrophic and uh, when the bubble breaks as it will and always has uh, people should not believe the lie that government is telling them that this prosperity is going to go on forever. Well, they're not ready to believe that the federal government or its politicians are lying to us, but they are. At this time, we shall be discussing another subject, small versus big.
What do I mean by that? Well, uh, let's uh, begin with where it began on a major scale in American history. The feeling developed in the latter half of the last century that the rise of major corporations was an unmitigated evil and something had to be done about it. The corporations were becoming too big. And so you had legislation passed, antitrust laws, uh, designed to curb the growth of uh, corporations and to break them up. The most famous example of a breakup was Standard Oil, which from being one large corporation became quite a number, Standard Oil of California, Standard Oil of Indiana, of Illinois, and so on. Now, since then, uh, we have had an idealization of smallness. In fact, one economist wrote a book, and the title, if not exactly in these words, conveyed this idea, Small is Beautiful. And I know he had a chapter devoted to that, Small is Beautiful. So you had a hatred of bigness on some uh, sides, and on others, a belief that it was good and necessary. And again, you had an exaltation of smallness, so that virtue was uh, equated with size. And the small oil companies were the good boys, and uh, Standard Oil and John D. Rockefeller are the bad. Well, this is a curious fact, because at the same time in American history, you've seen an aversion to smallness and an exaltation of bigness. For example, in athletics, at one time, even small towns had their baseball teams and uh, leagues so that uh, from coast to coast the country gave uh, sports lovers an opportunity all through the summer to take part in baseball games uh, even though these were not on the level of the big league games. At the same time, there was an increasing uh, drift towards consolidation, and uh, you had uh, other leagues formed until finally the big leagues swallowed up the little leagues. They're now trying to rec recreate smaller leagues. Well, is uh, big league baseball more interesting than the local high school baseball? 
the question is a very important one. For sheer enjoyment of a game, the high school game can be as interesting and more so. It can be faster, because until recently, a baseball game could last a full three hours and then some, because the uh, tempo was slowed down deliberately. The pitchers took longer and longer. Everything was done to slow down action, to make sure everything was done exactly right. Whereas in uh, small-town baseball, the action was fast. But Little League Baseball almost died. It's beginning to recover again. You mean minor league? What? Minor yes. League. Uh, this is a good illustration of the problem we have faced. The uh, exaltation of the big and in other areas the exaltation as with some economists of the small. We have to say that neither bigness nor smallness is necessarily a virtue, but uh, it is curious how much this has affected our national life in uh, this century. Well, there's, there's other aspects. For instance, in banking, uh, I always chuckle when I see uh, these various banks that are consolidating and they use all kinds of euphemisms, terms and so forth, but it, what it means is that a larger bank yes. uh, is taking on one that is insolvent, mm -hmm. that has too much bad debt. And uh, same with oil companies or any other large institutions. And they keep saying, well, they have to get lean and mean in order to compete in the world marketplace, but uh, you don't hear about these consolidations going on in other countries. You don't hear uh, consolidations of banks and oil companies, major corporations going on in, in foreign countries, uh, but we seem to have a, an epidemic of it in our economy. Either our economy is shrinking, the number of stocks uh, that, uh, you know, major stock, uh, the total number of uh, shares of stock dropped precipitously in the 1980s and early 1990s because of all of these consolidations and because now you've got all this cash chasing fewer and fewer ch shares of stock, it's bid the stock market up to tremendous heights. Uh, you've got enormous price-earnings ratios now that were unheard of uh, 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, typically, uh, 30 years ago, if you had a stock that had a price-earnings ratio of 15 to 1, that was considered kind of getting up into the flaky region. Now they're 50 to 1, and nobody thinks anything about it. It's ridiculous. So the, you know, these so-called economies of scale, they don't tell you the whole truth. It yeah. means that you know, larger ones are swallowing up the weaker ones, but the economy is really shrinking because these guys can't make it anymore. Well, we find that uh, rather commonly, when the banks of a particular region or state are rated, the smaller banks tend to do better. Being uh, purely local in smaller communities, they tend to be a bit more conservative. Uh, 
As a result, they tend to be bought out uh, whenever possible because they have untapped assets. Moreover, they are not given the same degree of protection by federal insurance agencies that the major banks are given. So we have a very unfair and an uneven picture in the world of banking in uh, the treatment by the federal government of banks big and little. So here again we have a problem in that uh, size is somehow more important to the federal government. Of course, size is a help because the big banks are also a major buyer of uh, federal bonds. Uh, certain types of banks are required to hold so much of their assets in such uh, paper. So we have an uneven picture here between the big and the little. And uh, it is warping the scene in the United States. Well, one uh, aspect of the large versus the small banks, uh, I've always felt that it was a good idea to do business with a small local bank simply because uh, in the great majority of cases, all of the money that they take in and deposits is loaned out on local projects. Whereas, a lot, for instance, in this area, this is not, uh, you know, this is a somewhat economically depressed area because there's not a lot of industry here. Not, government is the most significant employer in this county. Uh, the local banks, uh, the ones that, uh, the one that uh, I do business with now, I see their signs up as having provided the uh, financing for local projects in this area. Mm -hmm. You don't see any of the major banks with signs up at, for instance, a local that provided the funds for a new hospital or a new shopping center mm -hmm. or a new anything. Uh, this area has uh, predominantly people who are retirement age in our population in this county. So they've got all the direct, all the Social Security money uh, direct, goes direct deposit into the banks, and the banks suck it up and take it out of the area. They don't invest mm -hmm. it here. Uh, the major banks, uh, they don't invest money in this local area. And, you know, we get into a depression uh, situation or a recession, that money's gone out of the area and it's no, no longer producing wealth in this area. Mm -hmm. So the, the uh, this is the way the banking industry is being run. They go into areas where uh, there's uh, lots of cash and they suck it up and when there's no more there they move out. They close their branches and they're down the road as we have seen in this area. Mm. And you, the same cycle is repeated all over the country. They watch the demographics very carefully. They do demographic studies to see how many retired people are located or uh, 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 consolidated in a certain area and you'll see certain banks open up there just magically and yet no money is going into local projects. They're not building anything. That's very, very true. And uh, what's going to happen to these local communities where the money has left the area is going to be a major disaster in the not-too-distant future.
Well, the, you know, the economies of scale is, is being driven to the ridiculous. Uh, uh, you know, uh, ruthless capitalism, if, if it goes to the nth degree, uh, winds up being very destructive. You know, there is um, a happy medium. Uh, and right now, with all of the con consolidations and the uh, multinational corporations that have no allegiance to either the American uh, consumer, uh, the only time that uh, they pay any attention to the American consumer is when they need to be bailed out. Mm -hmm. who, who do they go to when they get in trouble? Who'd Lockheed go to? They didn't go to the British, the Bank of England. They didn't go to the Bank of France. They didn't go to the Bank of Italy. They didn't go to the Bank of Japan. They went to the U.S. taxpayer. Yes. Where did Chrysler go to when they got in a the jam? Mm -hmm. They didn't borrow money overseas. They went to the American taxpayer because they were the only place they could get the money, and that was the reason. Yes. The American taxpayer was the only sucker they could find in the entire world financial scene that would loan them the money and bail them out. And our government officials go right along with it because, you know, somebody whispers in the ear, well, it's good for the economy and, you know, it'll keep the voters happy, etc. And people keep believing these lies and they're going to keep being suckered right into to financial disaster. Well, we have to recognize that this uh, struggle between idealizing bigness and littleness is an unwise one that it masks the real problem that uh, the problem is not size but the integrity of the economics in terms of which big and little are operating and uh, this is our problem today we have a, a situation in which uh, everything that is big is disproportionately important whereas the major part of the economy in any community or any area depends on the little businessman and uh, very often he's the most knowledgeable because he deals rather than uh, an office of bureaucrats and clerks directly with the state, county, and federal governments. He knows the problems, and we've lost that perspective, the ground-level perspective on the world of economics which the little businessman provides. We have thus a debt-ridden economy an economy dominated by ideas of bigness and an economy that has uh, become neutral to basic moral concerns. One of the arguments we've been hearing a great deal of uh, with respect to the presidency, the possibility of impeachment and so on, is that uh, traditional moral standards are no longer relevant uh, 
to the political process, and therefore it is a mistake to introduce moral concerns into the political process. Echoes of Lenin. What? Echoes of, of Lenin. Oh, yes. Well, uh, this is a very, very dangerous uh, trend of thinking because when you uh, have that uh, world of thought, as you do, it means debt is no longer a moral problem. It means uh, getting big or maintaining yourself is not a moral matter. It's just purely a matter of economics. And you destroy the moral standard in one sphere after another. And I believe this is what we have done in the political and in the economic spheres. The moral concerns are virtually gone, except in some unusual circumstances. So we face a world which is falling apart and in which moral standards do not apply. Well, it's, it's the, the application of, of uh, Marx, Marxist-Leninism. Uh, tell any lie, uh, the means is worth the ends. It's simply the practical application of, uh, of an old story. And, but they, they, they don't have the guts to call it what it is. Yes. And that's from the president on down. Well, we've been accustomed to stereotypes. Uh, in some reading I did recently, I was reminded of something that was uh, very much a part of my childhood. Of course, the Russian Revolution. And uh, in those days, early years, the writers on the uh, Russian Revolution were vicious sometimes in their description of the royal family, as though they were ugly, vicious people exploiting the whole of the Russian Empire. Well, what happened subsequently was that as material became uh, more and more accessible to historians, as the Soviet Union settled down and became more stable, uh, this n new material indicated that uh, Tsar Nicholas was a very kindly and thoughtful man, very much concerned about the welfare of his people, and that uh, the Tsarina similarly had a very deep concern, as did other members of the royal family. The idea of their unconcern was a Marxist myth. Well, looking back now on history, we've seen that the whole of the picture has been falsified for us by a world of propaganda. Intentionally distorted. Yes. You can't have a revolution unless you create an imbalance. Yes. And the best way to create an imbalance is to uh, exercise the, the politics of envy. And every political structure through history has done the same thing. 
When I was a child growing up, the great villain of the ages, and it seems funny to say so now, was the Kaiser. Oh, yeah. So much of the popular literature. The cartoons, the newspaper cartoons. Yes, and radio, yeah. the Kaiser. And uh, whenever he was pictured uh, sawing wood there at his place in the Netherlands and the interviewer quoted him on something, it was as though it was a coded uh, language the Kaiser was speaking and he was still there lurking and waiting to return. And that was so prevalent a kind of thinking that uh, apparently Hitler actually dreamed of uh, possibly restoring uh, the Kaiser's son uh, if he would be a sufficient puppet. He wasn't too keen on the idea, but others around him were quite in favor of it. But there was no cooperation, and the idea was dropped. Well, all of the leaders in Europe were vilified yes. by the Marxists. Um, uh, even earlier than that, uh, in the French Revolution, you know, they'll let them eat cake yes. uh, yeah. in order to create the envy and the uh, the anger, you know, and the frustration of uh, the general population against their their leaders. I mean, it's been used over and over and over, and people continually suckered by it and yes. nobody seems to see it coming. Well, the villains of the 20s would make interesting reading today if a book were written sure. about them. Sure. It was laughable in retrospect, but uh, the media created a whole series of villains. The media cannot be trusted to tell us the truth. People have to dig the truth out for themselves, and it's not always easy. They have their own agenda. That, too, would be an interesting subject sometime. Villains. Right. Villains in uh, the 20th century. Well, who creates them? That's yes. the interesting thing, is who creates these villains? Yes. You know, why is it that we find out a generation or two later that these people were not as villainous as mm -hmm. we were told? And there seems there's a consistent pattern of that. Yes. People need to learn when they're being lied to. And how the people who were really villainous in our history have been glorified. Woodrow Wilson, for mm -hmm. one. Uh, he's been called by European uh, scholars a would-be messiah and as one who saw himself as more important than Jesus Christ. And there is evidence for that. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, we are not given such a picture of Wilson, nor are we told of his moral lapses and his uh, failures, he's too important in our history. Nor are we told a great deal of what went on in the uh, 
administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We have had a warped picture, but uh, it's a religious matter. We get these warped pictures because for religious reasons these people had to be vilified or glorified, had to be made into demons or saviors. And uh, the results for us have been very, very serious. We didn't take them for what they were, men who were trying to do a decent job. Uh, we made them into something more. Can you imagine any of the presidents before Lincoln ever thinking of themselves in messianic terms? No. They knew fully how important the United States was to the future of the world. And all you have to do is to look at the Monroe Doctrine and the Polk Doctrine to say, these men knew what the United States was and what it was going to be. They were thinking way ahead of their time. We don't see that. In fact, we don't give much credit to any of the presidents from Washington to uh, Lincoln, except for Jackson, possibly, and not in the best way because these men uh, saw themselves with a humility and yet they saw the future of the United States in a very telling way. Well, thank you all for listening and God bless you and don't forget to send in any questions you may have and we will try to answer them.